and, and obviously, like, Psytrance is kind of good. But everybody loves learning. to rep on Psytrance, so. Yeah. <laughs> well, it sucks. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, <laughs> I feel like, um, I was talking to a friend about this the other day, and he was like, man, Psytrance, like, if you come to that shit late in the game, it's like this weird little box that you just open and you look at it and you just go like, what the fuck is this? And it's like, close it again. <laughs> Good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. My name is Sam Matler and this is the EDM Podcast, a show where I interview producers, artists, industry experts and people involved in the music industry in some way that are interesting and have something interesting to say uh, for you, producers or artists or musicians. We do have a few uh, non-producers listening to the show, which is awesome. Now this interview is with someone called Mr. Bill, who I'm sure you're aware of. If you aren't, uh, then you're in for a treat. He is a music producer and educator as well. Uh, he does a lot of YouTube tutorials and also performs. And he's a very interesting guy. Um, he knows his stuff when it comes to production. He's got a ton of interesting ideas. And this is one of my favorite interviews um, in terms of how practical it is uh, for music producers. So. We talk about how to score a Nicolas Cage movie, uh, the workflow involved behind that. Uh, Mr. Bill has just done that, so that's really interesting, which I didn't know before I started the interview. We talk about the difference between soft ticket and hard ticket events, uh, Mr. Bill's approach to music production education, um, whether drag and drop resources like construction kits are bad. We talk about his live band setup, which is fascinating, um, and I loved hearing about that the skills you should focus on to become a good producer, the importance of balance and mixing, and also why Creative Block doesn't exist. And I've talked about this a few times, um, but it's refreshing to hear someone talk about Creative Block and the way that Bill does. So we talk about a bunch of stuff beyond that as well, but I'll leave you to listen to the interview to find out what that is. You can find the full show notes plus my takeaways for this interview at edmprod.com slash 54. That is edmproduct.com slash 54. Without further ado, here is Mr. Bill. This episode is brought to you by EDM Foundations. EDM Foundations is my course for new producers, those who've been producing for under 12 months or even those who've just started. The whole idea of the EDM Foundations course is that you learn the fundamentals of music production by actually doing and not just learning the theoretical stuff. The course consists of over 12 hours worth of streamable video where I walk you through the creation of three songs and give you advice and tips for working on your own original alongside them. We've had over 500 people sign up for this course. Many of them have had great results. If you want to learn more about the course, head over to edmfoundations.com. Welcome back to the EDM podcast today. I'm joined by Mr. Bill. Bill, how's it going? Good, man. Good. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's a little bit cold here in Auckland, but uh, that should pass. For those who don't know you, and I don't think there'll be that many people because you're quite uh, influential in the music production scene, who are you? What do you currently do? So, as you said, my name's Mr. Bill. Um, I named myself that just because my name is Bill and I just, uh, I didn't really, I was too busy being creative with the music to worry about the name, I guess. Love it. Yeah. I, I write electronic music. Um, that's primarily what I spend my days doing. 
Um, I use Ableton Live and yeah, I also teach Ableton Live to people. And I've basically been doing this for, um, I don't know, like 10 years now or something. So yeah, I kind of been at it for a while and yeah, I, I love it and it's what I do. What age were you when you're like, I love music, I want to I wanna do this? I was definitely like under the age of 10. So probably like, um, yeah, shit, I don't know. How old are you in Australian schooling when you're like in year two or three? Um, it must be similar to New Zealand, maybe like seven, eight. Yeah, so it probably was around that time because I was like, so, so I left, um, so I grew up in Sydney I left Sydney when I was about, um, when I was in year five and definitely the years leading up to that, like multiple years leading up to that, I was in like the school band there playing keys and that was, yeah, when I, year three, four and possibly even year two, yeah, it was probably year three and four. So yeah, probably seven or eight. And then how did you get into, uh, production specifically from there? It's actually a funny story. I, I had a friend, um, called Frosty. And he's like one of those experienced whore type people who just like, you know, he'll he'll just like get his bags and go to Cambodia with like, you know, one backpack for like four months type of thing. <laughs> one of those type of guys. Um, and he's always been like that. So one day he was like, oh, man, like because I was in metal bands and shit. Right. Um, and I was using GarageBand on my parents computer, actually like writing metal and stuff. Uh, so he was like, oh, man, you got to come to a doof. <laughs> he took me to a to a, a doof. To a doof on- yeah, doof on a beach. So, so for those who don't know, a doof is um, <laughs> never heard of a doof, really. No. no. Uh, so it's basically like a psytrance party put on by like a bunch of hippies, like bogan <laughs> hippies. And um, this one was on a beach. So, so I rocked up and it was like nothing I've ever seen. It's just like because I'm like, coming from the metal scene, you know. Like, um, I just walk out to this this doof on a beach in the middle of Wollongong, if you know where that is. And um, yeah, and there's just like a bunch of hippies and dancing to psytrance and lasers and all sorts of shit and i was just like what the fuck um (laughs) so so he um my friend frosty got got into production after that using fruity loops and then he kind of showed me a bit about it and i was like oh it's kind of cool but i never really wanted to write electronic music i was still like pretty sold on doing metal um rather i just didn't think it was possible to write electronic music because listening to it it sounds so like fucking crazy so I was like, oh, I don't know, it sounds like, you know, you'd need to know, you'd need to be like a, a mad scientist to do that stuff, right? So, um, so I never really thought about getting into it and I was still just doing metal and stuff. And then I guess over the years, I just slowly sort of made my way to Ableton um, just because a lot of my friends were using it. And, and then I started watching actually a New Zealand guy, um, Tom Cosm's ah, tutorials yeah, yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, so I learned a lot from his YouTube channel. And that's kind of what influenced me to make my YouTube channel uh, years later down the track. Uh, and yeah, so it's it basically just like a yeah, series of strange events that got me into it. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And I mean, you, obviously you're doing this full time. How long have you been doing it full time for? And do you know like when the switch happened? Um, so I don't think there was like a switch per se. And I think that I've been doing it full time from the day I started, actually, because like um, I was uh, I come from like a middle class Australian white family, so the privilege is, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like I my my parents were totally supportive of like supporting me through uni and stuff like that. So I was kind of yeah, I was I was basically just like learning to do this as I was going to uni and um 
and obviously you know doing a uni degree they say it's full-time but you still have like four or five days off a week so um yeah so it was very not full-time so i had a lot of time to do my own shit um and that's kind of yeah so so i would never say actually um yeah basically by the time i finished uni i was kind of doing enough shows to not really have to um like not be like that that i could still just do that full-time sort of thing but i was also still living with my parents so i wasn't paying rent and this is when i was like 24 it's like shameful shit but <laughs> oh, i don't um, think 24 is that bad i think when you get to like 34 or above right. it starts yeah <laughs> getting a bit shameful um yeah so so i was with my parents actually uh, up until i was about 24 and mm. then um yeah and then i left and went to melbourne for a few years and then by that point i'd yeah, I just, it was clear that I had to move to America because um, I was just making the trip over here so many times a year. Uh, so my manager at the time um, decided uh, to help me facilitate that. So yeah, yeah, it's basically been the the broad story up until now. Yeah, no, that's cool. Have you ever thought? Because uh, some people actually, I don't think enough people talk about this, but we had Sean Tyus, a trance guy, on the show. He was talking about how volatile the industry is and, and how hard it can be psychologically to be doing music full time. Because um, mm-hmm. you're just not sure about how many shows you're going to be doing the next year. Like, has it ever been stressful in that regard? Or, like, has it ever been a challenging point financially or, or anything else? Honestly, not really, man. I, I think I've just, like, gotten super fucking lucky, though. Hey, like, uh, I, I wouldn't say, like, it's all luck. Obviously, um, I mean, luck isn't even fucking real. Like, it's just some bullshit that we use to justify, you know, shit that happens. Um, I've worked really hard, definitely, like like eight to twelve hours a day in the studio, pretty much for the last sort of ten years, unless I'm to her. Um, so yeah, definitely worked hard, and uh, I've actually just had to say no to any more shows this year because I had too many, and I was kind of just <laughs> getting like. To, the, to a point where I thought, well, actually, um, well, it, it, it lined up with something else. Like, I, I did a movie recently as well. Like, I, I scored a Nicolas Cage movie. No way. So, yeah, yeah. So, I just finished that and I got paid out from that. So, I'm in this, like, strange financial position right now where, like, for the first time in my life, I don't have to play shows. So, um, I'm obviously taking that uh, that liberty and not doing any more shows this year. I've got an Australian tour coming up in, like, uh, a week, actually um we're doing uh, me and uh ryan my friend ryan who's like the other half of a side project i do called electricado um we're doing like six shows or something in two weeks in australia and then i come back here and oh actually on friday i have to play in philadelphia as well and then uh and then i'm doing that oregon eclipse festival in in um portland or oregon or whatever but yeah apart, apart from that uh no man i've really never had an issue with like shows actually i I did like probably shit i don't know at least like 60 to 70 shows last year and um and then i did the year before that probably something a little less maybe 50 and the year before that probably 50 again so it's like yeah i find it um i had a really good agent uh i've always had a really good agent actually I've, i've always been on like um for instance, for a while, I was on AM only, which is like Skrillex's agency and, yeah, and all that stuff. Um, and then I, I went to a different agency called Surefire, which is like sort of more boutique, but um, it's like the, a dubstep agency who do like Omunit and Distance and Truth and Eprom and stuff like that. Uh, and then recently I moved to Madison House, which is like Bass Nectar's agency. 
um, and string cheese incident and like all these really big acts. So um, I, I think what he might have been talking about with the trance thing and, and having it be a bit, bit volatile and a bit, um, what's the word, like temperamental in the scene is that trance kind of um it's like this staple thing i feel like that comes and goes and and stuff like that and surely what i'm doing is as well i mean i've only been playing shows for like solidly for three or four years so um yeah i would say definitely i'm probably gonna see some struggle at some point in my career of 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 not knowing or not not having any shows to play but obviously right now that's not the case um, and instead it's had to go the other way where I've had to say no rather than the shows. I'm not actually sure if this is true, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I think a lot of people get the, they, they hit that wave uh, whether it's like the big room trend of 2012 to 15. Um, they play a lot of shows. They've never had that much wealth in their life. So they like spend it all and then their career kind of dies down and they're like back at square one. And I feel like not enough artists are smart about their finances. I'm not sure if that's true though. Okay, so um, I have a couple of views on that. First of all, I, I don't even know about that. Like I've never actually heard of anyone making that much and then fucking it up or anything. I'm, sh- I'm sure it happens, but I personally haven't heard of anyone ever doing that. Um, secondly, uh, I think with trends like that, um, like big room or whatever once the demand for it dies out if you spent your sort of like learning process figuring out how to do big room and then that goes away then when the next trend comes around you just sort of have to change your style to keep going with that mainstream medium type of shit whereas what i'm doing is sort of different because i've always um pretty much from the get-go the only shows i've ever played have been hard ticket headline shows um or nice support slots for acts who are doing hardline ticket headline shows or festivals do you want to explain hard hard ticket to those who don't know what it means yeah so so a hard ticket event uh there's two types of events really that you that you end up playing as an artist one's hard ticket and one's soft ticket so a soft ticket event would be like a festival so for instance um if you're playing at a festival it's not up to you to sell the tickets and there's going to be like an inherent packed crowd there regardless uh so you don't have to worry about it too much but a hard ticket event would be like if people are actually buying like a ticket, like an actual physical ticket to come and see your headline show like that, that would be a hard ticket event. I mean, I mean, I guess technically a festival is a hard ticket event because people do buy a ticket to come there. Um, so actually a soft ticket event would be like if I played at, uh, uh, what's that place called? Sandwiches, you said? Yeah, the, the club in, that used to exist in Wellington, right. So, so let's say if Noisier played there, would you just rock up there and buy a ticket at the door or would you buy the ticket like online beforehand? Yeah. On beforehand. Okay, so that's a hard, yeah, I would say that's a hard ticket, but, but some places don't offer that option and you just have to sort of walk up and that's what's called a walk up crowd or a soft ticket, I guess. Um, so yeah, for me personally, I play more hard ticket stuff and, uh, you sort of only do that if you're like an artist that has fans sort of thing, you know, um, like a lot of these big room people, they don't necessarily have, uh, I mean, they probably have huge numbers online or whatever, but they don't have like real hardcore fans that will like buy their tickets and come out to their events. Um, and you can prove that because the trend goes away and then people stop coming to their shows. Right. So people are there for, the, for the trend and the sound rather than the artist themselves. Whereas someone like, um, like the orb, for instance, I don't know if you know these guys, do you know, do you know the orb or like Ot or tipper or something? Yeah, you know? I know tipper. Yeah. Yeah. So tipper, like he's, he's never ever going to get to a point in his career again 
where thousands of people don't come to one of his shows. It's just mm-hmm. not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's like he has fans now because he's done like a particular um, obscure thing, and, and people not based have on a trend. No, not at all. People have fallen in love with like him and him as an artist, so he has real fans, you know. So he's able to just like um, book out these big ass venues in America now, like Red Rocks, for instance, is a 10,000 person venue, and he sold that out like last year or the year before. Um, and and that's yeah, the kind of uh, um, I think the problem. Well, not necessarily a problem for me, but maybe the problem that a lot of these artists who are doing these trendy things might be running into later on down the track when the trend goes away, and they have a real fan base by doing a unique thing or by being a unique artist that they're kind of going to be in these weird positions of um yeah not knowing what to do with their career and whatnot nicholas cage the film how did that come about that's amazing so that came about actually um by my tutorials so the director i don't know have you ever seen the movie crank with jason statham i think so yeah yeah or or the ghost rider with nicholas cage yes yep yeah, so so it's the same director who made those movies. Um, I think he's made a few other movies too. He's anyway, yeah. He um he was like trying to learn how to use Ableton himself. <laughs> I think because he wanted oh, to start doing. Some, I, I think he wanted to do some scoring, or I think he wanted to just like fuck around with it. I don't know something. So he um he started learning Ableton off my tutorials online. And I guess at some point during the learning process, he was just like, fuck it, I'm just going to get this guy to do it. <laughs> just contact me. Um, and yeah, he yeah, he hit me up under a weird pretense or, or premise, I guess the word would be. He hit me up under the pre- premise that um, not, not that he wanted me to do what I do for the movie, but that he saw the skill that I had and that I could do it. Mm. So, so he kind of hit me up under that premise. He was like... So what you do, like glitch hop and dubstep and all this crap, he said, don't like do any of that. We don't want any of that. And then we just sort of had to stay there for a while and figure out the the vibe of the movie. And um, it turned out to be some sort of, I guess, I don't know. It's sort of like um, I, I w- I'm not going to compare myself to Vangelis because I'm not Vangelis and he's way fucking better than me at this stuff, obviously. But like I was watching this video the other day on the soundtrack to Blade Runner, obviously, because there's a new Blade Runner coming out. It's like all the rage right now. Um, and, and the thing that the video was saying is that Vangelis like made this soundtrack that sort of like, it was like between sound design and music almost like it wasn't necessarily just, just music. It kind of, you know, sometimes you would hear a sound and it would be a part of the soundtrack, but you'd perceive it as like the sound of a spaceship or maybe like a, something coming out of one of the characters brains or something like that. You know, it's, um, this interesting sort of way of scoring, uh, I guess it's like extremely non-diegetic. Are you familiar with that term? Diegetic no, and non no. So diegetic stuff, this is all shit that I learned doing it actually. Um, so diegetic means uh, it's, it's either one or the other. I might be getting it back to front, but, but diegetic um, means stuff that's on the screen. So like if you see uh, like a stick being broken on the screen and then you hear the sound of a stick being broken, that's a diegetic sound. Right. But if you if you like if the camera is looking at something else and you hear the sound of the stick being broken but you know that it's just outside of the camera frame then that's what would be called non-diegetic because it's like you're not actually seeing the thing but you're still dictating with it with that sound so um so a lot of the soundtrack was kind of that sort of stuff it was it was like uh trying to use the music to dictate emotion in these non-diegetic ways and i was yeah, super interesting way of doing stuff and, and something I'd never thought of really before. And yeah, it was definitely challenging, but yeah, I was gonna yeah, say, came, yeah. 
yeah, it, it basically came about by this dude watching my tutorials and being like, I bet this guy could do it. And then yeah, we just figured it out from there, basically. I'm curious as to what the workflow was like, because as a producer, um, you know, like you have control over the whole process when you're making a song by yourself, you, you dictate everything. But I imagine working with a director, there's a lot more, I don't know, was there, did you have to come to a compromise on certain things or? Oh, everything. I mean, well, absolutely, you have to come to a compromise with everything. Because at, at the end, like, the director is the guy who makes all the decisions, right? So he makes, like, there'll be editors there editing the film, and there'll be sound designers there, and there'll be, like, me as a composer and, like, other people, and we'll all be sitting there in a room working or, you know, working remotely or whatever. But at the end of the day, he's the one who's like, no, it's not quite right. This needs to change because it's his vision, you know, and everyone's allegiance needs to be with him, and that's the way the movie ends up becoming a movie by having sort of direction there. Um, but the, the workflow was kind of interesting at first. He was just sort of sending me stuff that he liked and that, that he wanted me to sort of do. So he actually didn't send me any Vangelis. He sent me um, some Ennio Morricone, and, uh, which is like this Italian composer, I believe. And he sent me some like John Carpenter stuff, which is um, the guy who, who did um, the thing. Uh, and this is all just sort of like, it's sort of like synth-based type of music. So it's... um you listen to it and it's just like these sort of dom dom type pulse shit and like pads and you know sci-fi type of shit and then he showed me this stuff by um this this act called goblin i guess and i'd never heard of him before and i've never heard of him since but um they yeah he just sent me like a bunch of stuff and he was like this is kind of what i want it to be like uh like this sort of style and for a while it took me a while to get my head around it because it's so like it actually in the end was like felt like i wasn't doing enough because it was super simple stuff like just one pulse of synth or something or you know one pad here and there or something but it's like you know the movie needs certain things here and there uh so the workflow was kind of him sending me stuff like that and then me just trying to sort of not imitate it but do something along the lines of these things um and then he would later on down the track like a few maybe a month later or something he started sending me like scenes of the of the movie once they started getting some rough cuts together of the footage he um started sending me some some cuts of some scenes and then i was trying to sort of match up some of the stuff that i'd done to some of the scenes and then rewriting some new stuff and whatnot so yeah it was kind of an interesting process i, I didn't um really load the clips into ableton and and work that way i kind of just like watched them on another screen and was just working in ableton and then sending him stuff so it's, yeah, it's actually much much different than I had originally imagined film work to be. Yeah, no, that's he sounds like a good director though because I've heard. Um, actually, I watched a video on this. I don't know if you've seen it, but apparently, what happens is a lot of directors will use like placeholder music from other films, temp. and then, yeah, and they get temp. Yeah, temp, and then they'll get attached to that. So yep. it's called temp love. Temp love. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's fascinating. So, um, yeah, so so we didn't do that for this movie actually, and and the whole thing is because he didn't want he didn't want to do it. Like he um he knows about this thing. Obviously, everyone like in the film industry knows about it. So yeah, they'll definitely like um we don't want to use any temp music because that just ruins the fucking movie basically. So yeah, the only music that's ever been to the film has been my music, and uh and now I think he would have temp love for that so if you replace that with anything like even Hans Zimmer or something amazing he probably would be like no nah, it's not right now you know <laughs> it's kind of strange hey like you see it this one way and then you can't like see it any other way if you could 
define it somehow what is your approach to music education and also a second part to this question what do you not like about the current state of music production education if that's youtube tutorials or or whatever okay um so the first question what's my approach my approach is to like remove all of the bullshit from complicated ideas and to only like put out ideas when i know that i have a good one um and basically i'm i'm a dummy man like i'm i'm a total layman for sure i know some complicated shit now but i'm definitely coming from like the some you know some people just are really good at thinking abstractly about shit and like for instance reading like i i fucking suck at like reading something and then being like oh okay i've never touched this synth in my life but i can just like kind of you know abstractly think about the whole thing and then when i get to the place like apply all that information you know i can't do that at all i've never been able to do that um like my reading comprehension sucks so my approach to teaching is sort of like um like very matter of fact and and trying to teach people from like the most basic sort of level and and trying to demystify everything and and not make at all like i'm smarter than you and anything like that i'm trying to make it as like showing people that hey this actually is a super super simple thing you just need to like this one extra bit of information that somebody wouldn't tell you or something or something like that um so that's my approach to it is trying to demystify it and break it down as much as possible and make it like as simple as possible yet still convey these really complex ideas uh based on problems that i've had in the past with understanding them myself Mm. and realizing that and then trying to pass the information on effectively to other people so that that's that um the current state of it and the problem that i have with it is um you have these people um i don't know if i should name names i don't know if i have to name names like i'm pretty (laughs) sure everyone like knows what's going on but basically i I feel like a lot of these youtube tutorial people at the moment um they're not really teaching because they want to like teach people complex stuff and they're not they're not doing it for any other reason other than to get youtube views and i think it's the same with anything like it's um the same reason that people are writing a lot of these future bass and dubstep and trap and whatnot it's just to get hits on the internet you know um and and it's fine like i mean it doesn't really trigger me or anything like that but at the same time i think it's like if people are watching it and getting something out of it and that's awesome but i think it's fucking bullshit <laughs> i think like whenever i watch any of these tutorials i'm i'm not having a good time um there's a few really good people man like in Kanti, super fucking good um he doesn't do youtube tutorials that often like me um we do and we have a good idea but whenever he puts one out it's awesome uh slink does some really good ones wool some really good ones but then on the other side and i don't want to like shit talk anyone too hard but you have those people like multiplier and stuff like that who treat more like he he says this himself he treats it more like a comedy channel yeah and um and i get it like it's it's more of like a fun youtube thing or whatever and like i said i don't want to shit talk the guy he's a really nice guy Mm. i've talked to him he's been on the show yeah he's a super nice guy um but yeah like that kind of stuff i don't really see is very like I, it doesn't have much integrity as far as i'm concerned but but it's a different thing like he classes it as comedy and therefore you know we can't say that it, oh, it doesn't have any integrity as a music production because he's not apparently he's not trying to do that anyway he's honest about it i think there are other people out there who explain a concept that could be explained in one minute and take 20 minutes yep. to do it and like pack it with a bunch of fluff and i don't like that no it's fucking annoying it's a waste of your time yeah exactly yeah or it depends or if, you're trying to, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I'm totally all about trying to save people's time and um, just trying because I, I used to get the shits so hard when I was trying to like first learn Ableton, and I'd try to you know look at a tutorial or something, and you'd be sitting there like 40 minutes later, and this guy'd still be explaining like how to fucking tab to the next window or something, and you're like, like I don't think tutorials are supposed to be three week um, workshops or like courses on how to learn this or this like they're just short little things yep. that teach a singular concept totally and that, that's basically what i do with my youtube stuff and the differentiation i make is um to to make those long courses not three weeks but like 10 hours and 20 hours and stuff like that is um i yeah that's the stuff that i make for the website and it's more like premium content where i do sit there and flesh everything out from start to finish and that's like if you're a total beginner where like if, if <laughs> it sounds like egotistical and cocky but um for a total beginner i'm like convinced that if they go to my website and watch 40 hours of my content that they'll be not uh, maybe not as good as me because i don't have the years of experience but they'll know everything i know like and they'll be able to apply it in their, whatever way they want and the only thing standing between me and them at that point is experience and practice because all the concepts are there you know talk about your uh your site for a moment for those people who haven't come across it yeah, so so this is another thing that's kept me out of the financial ruts is um MrBillsTunes.com and I basically charge people $15 a month to subscribe there to get access to all this content um, and I try to put up new stuff every month or if not multiple times a month like, you know, sometimes I'll put up a sound pack or a, a device that I made to make, you know, EQing something easier or, or something like that. Like, I'll, I'll just try to put some stuff up every month so people are getting some value out of it and uh, and at the same time, they're supporting me and keeping me in the studio and helping me do this stuff. Uh, and I also put up a lot of, um, yeah, I put up a lot of sample packs and a lot of tutorials, obviously, as well, and, and a lot of like Ableton project files. And I think for me, one of the main things um, with learning Ableton was getting my hands on some good quality project files, mm-hmm. um, mainly uh, Tom's actually. And I, I reverse engineered the shit out of him, man. Like I would sit there for hours, like going through and, and trying to figure out why he made all the decisions that he made. Yes. And, yeah. then, and then trying to figure out how I would make better decisions or equal decisions to make my tracks sound equally as good or whatever, you know, and being able to like solo all the elements and see what they sound like on their own and then how they sound in a mix really helps as well. I think to be able to, because when you're trying to mix something, at first you're just like i don't understand how all this goes together but when when you sort of like see it in a project file or stems and you consult everything and and hear how it all fits together it gives you this weird like you get this um subconscious type of learning out of it where you kind of become good at you know then being able to identify what your stuff should sound like soloed and and then in the mix and stuff like that so basically my website is just a whole arsenal of this type of stuff and people can basically give me money to go get it and it really helps me and hopefully really helps them too. Mm, $15 is really good too. And it's $10 a month if you pay a whole year up front. Yep, yep. The longer you pay for, the cheaper it gets. Cool. Um, you're right about project files. I remember like, I think I downloaded a template by some trance guy and I was like looking through it and I was, I was just asking questions like, wow, why would he do that? Oh, and then like five minutes later, work out why. And then I start yeah, doing yeah. that in my own projects and it's like game changing. Um, that helps so much. Yeah, exactly. And so I think the in with my website, like the um yeah, seeing the tutorials and then and then also having the project files, it's like a good complimentary thing to have if you're watching videos 
uh, to go through the steps of the videos with the project files too, and then and then be like, oh, okay, I can sort of get more hands-on because different people learn differently. You know, like I'm a very hands-on type of learner, but I know some people, like I said before, can just read shit and and they're fine with that. Um, or some people can like are oral learners; they hear stuff and they learn that way. So I think I'm offering people a bunch of different ways to learn. Uh, it's good, you know, it's good to, um, yeah, tap into as many different resources of the brain as possible to try and get the information to retain and stuff. What frustrates you about the electronic music production community as a whole? I, I don't know. I mean, anything that I would say frustrates me about it is just jealousy shit. And I've kind of learned to get over that a while. Well, actually recently, well, over the last like six to 12 months, I've been learning to kind of get over this jealousy of like people who are far of like objectively far less talented than me doing way better than me, like financially and, and, you know, pulling people to shows and stuff. But, but the thing is, is you got to realize, I think if, if other people are seeing the value in what they do, like, just cause I don't see that value, it doesn't mean that it's that, that it doesn't have value cause it's not technically fucking perfect or something, you know? So, um, I would say that's like one of the things that, that bothers me a little bit about the scene is just how, um, and I think it's just always been this way. People always react to simple stuff and, and that it, it frustrates me for sure because I don't get it. Like I, obviously I wouldn't be writing glitch if I understood what, like the beauty of simplicity or something. Um, so for me, I guess that's like a frustrating thing, but I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just frustrating for me personally. Uh, overall, um, I have like this love hate sort of thing with because and I'll tell you why I have this love hate thing with how easy it is to get into electronic music production now. Um, I hate it because it just fills <laughs> it just fills the fucking bandwidth up with garbage. But but I love it as well because if it wasn't there, I probably wouldn't have got into it. And um, so that's like a bittersweet type of thing, I guess. And I don't know, there's little shit that annoys me. But at the end of the day, I think like it's all human nature and it's always been like that and it's just electronic music that's that i'm concentrating on and the way that it's expressing itself to me personally in this day and age you know maybe if i was born as a neanderthal or some bullshit i'd just get frustrated at how somebody else like figured out how to hit a stick on a rock and it was super effective and i'm just like god damn it though like i've been trying to make this like sword out of a stone for like five years and you just hit a fucking stick and it works fuck you <laughs> yeah that's a good point actually i wonder if that i haven't thought about that but i remember like because i got into djing around the same time as production like i don't do it anymore but there was always the vinyl crowd who were like oh cdjs and like blah 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 and like midi controllers and it's like are you are you complaining because it's objectively worse using CDJs or because like your method is really inefficient and you're sick of lugging crates around and you're just like being resentful? Pretty much and I, I totally get it and I, I'm assuming I'd be the same way about anything. It's just like a personality type or something but um but it's just because I'm in electronic music that's why I feel about that's why I feel this way about this thing. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Uh, yeah, I definitely get the whole lugging around fucking gear thing because I, I do like a. You said we're going to talk about a live setup, but oh, yeah, we'll go yeah. into that later. But um, yeah, with the live setup thing, I carry around like pelicans worth of stuff and you know a drum kit, a drummer, and like five or six people in a van. Like it's, yeah, it's like a pretty big setup, and it, and it fucking pisses me off, man, when somebody just walks into a club with USB sticks and like gets the elicits the exact same reaction. You know, I want to talk about that next, actually, but uh, just. 
before we we change topics, do you think there's a problem with? Because I've had a lot of people ask me about this. Do you think there's a problem with certain companies selling products that um, are essentially coming across as like drag and drop, uh, like MIDI construction kits, so on and so on, which allows people presets, which allows people to pretty much put a song together in an hour that doesn't sound unique at all um but sounds like decent um kind of but at the same time i'd i'd be lying if i said that i hadn't learned a lot from looking at like cymatics presets for instance Mm -hmm. like I, i looked at all of their presets to figure out why people were enjoying them so much and in the process i didn't really enjoy them that much but i but i learned a lot about synthesis um, and by the end of it, I feel like I'm really proficient with Serum just from looking at these presets. So in some way, um, it depends how you treat them. I think the, the issue is not within the people selling the thing because they're just capitalizing on a dumb market and making money. And there's, not, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like I, I, I hate to say that I do the same thing, but I kind of do. <laughs> um, whereas like, uh, not, not saying that anyone's dumb, but, but you know what I mean? Like yeah, it's a, yeah there's a market for it and therefore they're capitalizing on it and that's that's fine i, I, I do the same yeah. thing right so so it's it's the user really that we should be frustrated at if anything not so much the company who's enabling them you know yeah true true no, that makes a lot of sense because i i was a user of the same product but i treated it differently and learned from it rather than used it in my own songs so we can't say that the product is inherently bad and i suppose if if you have a user who's going in with the mindset of if i buy this preset pack i'll be famous it actually doesn't matter what the company's doing because they'll try find a company that's telling them that you know eventually they're going to treat every product like that if that's their mindset right exactly yeah totally yeah that's right like they they could um buy a project file off my website which is designed for educational purposes and not at all like based in the whole commercial thing at all but they could get two things in it like a kick sample that they like and a snare sample that they like and go that's the one i need and go download my project file and turn it into the next fucking tiesto track and and i I would never i would probably never know for starters and then secondly, I mean, shit, if they can apply it in that way and I couldn't, then really um, they had the ability to do exactly that, apply it in a way that I couldn't. And there's something to be said for that as well. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so let's talk about your live setup then. What does that look like? Jesse asked, Jesse Breda asked me to ask this question actually. And <laughs> yeah, what does your current live setup look like? And the second part to this question, which I think will be interesting is, is there something you want to improve about it? <clears throat> um, there's always something that I want to improve about it. So the so the one that Jesse saw from that point, it's actually been improved since then. Uh, so at the time that Jesse saw it, it was like a visual setup. So I had, we had um, three short throw projectors, uh, and then I had a my computer on stage and a bunch of MIDI controllers, like a drum pad and a MIDI fighter and a DS1, like a mixer type thing, and a, and a few other things. And then I have a drummer, and then. I'm sending him a click track and a, and a stereo pair so he can just hear what's going on. And then I'm sending uh, Ethernet to my visual guys so everything that I hit on my controllers triggers visuals behind me. Uh, and then basically I'm just like playing a lot of the parts live. We just have sort of, I guess, backing tracks that play and then some of the elements are pulled out. And instead of, you know, um, instead of like applying effects to stems or whatever, I'll just have a stem mute and then I'll play that part live. So, so the whole thing is basically me and a drummer playing 
50% of the shit live and the other 50% is like backing tracks and stuff in, in, in a simpler sense. There's obviously a lot of like interesting stuff going on in there as well. But um, in a simpler sense, that's like the premise of it. And, and what's happened since then, uh, since the version that Jesse saw, is we've basically just pulled out more of the tracks and uh, improved the drum setup by adding sensory percussion triggers to it. So they're kind of like, um, they're like these really uh crazy triggers where you can hit the drum in like 10 different ways like cross stick or rim shot or hit the edge of the drum hit the shell and it like recognizes all these different gesticulations and and can produce a different sound and um so it's so kind of like the electronics sound really natural with the drum so so we've set that up now so all the drum tracks are pulled out of the tracks now so all of them are being played live and then uh, I'm playing a lot of like doing a lot of sampling live. And then most of the bass tracks and the synth leads and chords and stuff are being played by um, by a keyboard player now. So, yeah, we basically are playing like maybe 70 to 80 percent of the track and the other 20 percent is just backing track at this point. Oh, man, it's so awesome. Well, you're, you're essentially a band. Pretty, pretty much. Yeah, I'm basically transposing my music from that I've written in the studio and never meant for it to be played live. And now I'm transposing that into the live setting and it's like this crazy challenge. But yeah, like I was saying before, it's frustrating because I'll like rock up with a bunch of people and a stack of gear and do these like two, three hour sound checks and shit. Yeah, it's not like two then, USB sticks. Yeah, and you know, maybe like 100 or uh, 300 people will come or something and I'll have time. But then you'll see these people with two USB sticks, man. They'll like rock up to a, a club and, and just throw their USB sticks in and elicit like a bigger reaction from more people by doing something with way less well i'm not going to say way less value because the value is sort of put on that by the user i'd say skill and work involved definitely a lot less skill and work involved but yeah the value is obviously a personal thing for me it has less value but seems like for the people in the clubs it has more so (laughs) but yeah effectively it's like a band type of thing so we're trying to uh yeah we're just trying to you know um make something a little bit more it's more fun to do that live than it is to just you know sit there and press play on some tracks and and it also is like very like a contextual thing as well like i I never really thought playing my songs um just out of ableton really put like it wasn't the right context for my songs live like uh, i feel like that it should be played by a band or something like it makes more sense and it's more fun and, and definitely i think it elicits more of a reaction for my music like if i if i go and play my stuff out of ableton in a club i don't really ever get that good of a reaction but if, with the whole band setup i definitely get like a way better reaction yeah that makes sense and i think also the style of music like if you made melbourne bounce you probably wouldn't hire a drummer because no it wouldn't make sense no i mean what are they going to do like hit the kick drum in the snare um, yeah exactly interesting okay um, this is this might be a hard question to answer but to what degree is skill necessary to write great music and should people spend more time just developing production skills in, in isolation like um, I'm going to spend 3000 sound design or more time writing actual songs is there a balance or should people just focus on one as a beginner or the other uh, honestly, man, I think um, both are important. Like, especially if you're listening to, um, like, like for instance, something like Tipper. Let's go back to Tipper. Um, his composition is great. Uh, his sound design is fucking amazing. His mix downs are amazing. So it's all those things combined that make his stuff great. Like, if you took the same composition 
and you removed all the sound design and, and crazy mixing, um, it would probably be kind of average. But uh, so I think it depends because if you, then on the other hand, you have stuff like the Beatles, which compositionally is insane, but production wise, not so insane. Uh, and and that's also a thing like if you added sound design and mixing to that, it would be probably better um, and more cool but it's not what makes it so i think it, it depends on what what it is about your music um that is like the strong point you know there's these people like upscale records i don't know if you know them they're like uh, neuro producers uh, you know so like frequent and stuff like that yeah so he's a good example i think of somebody who has like i don't want to like uh, he's one of like he's a really good friend of mine so i can talk shit on him <laughs> uh he's got like no compositional skills like his his compositional skills go as far as knowing where to put a kick and a snare and a bass sound and some and shit like but but his sound design is fucking crazy and his mix downs are crazy so um so listening to his stuff you don't really need the composition there to to enjoy it as what it is you know but what it is is not a crazy like it's not a song it's a it's a sound design piece with a heavy beat behind it um, so I guess it, it depends, you know, like I've got songs where I haven't spent as much effort on the mix and the, and the um, sound design because it's more of a melodic driven thing. Uh, and then I have other things where it's more based around the sound design and stuff like that and therefore um, haven't really necessarily needed uh, to to go as hard on the compositional side or whatever. But obviously a mix of the two is good. I would say it's really up to the the producer or the composer to decide what it is that they find more, more value or more importance in what they have more fun doing and stuff like that. And then, you know, if you graded everything, then that's awesome. But generally not a lot of people are. So um, you probably find that you'll just tend to be good at one or the other or, you know. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really good point. Um, and I've always said, because I'll get emails from people saying, you know, I want to learn sound design, like blah, blah, blah. I want to do this and this. And it's like, what what do you actually care about and what do you want to do? Because if you want to write music for pop artists, like in the background, behind the scenes, learning sound design, probably not as important as songwriting and composition. Well, well, that's the thing. If you're writing music for, for pop, um, so for instance, I, the guy who plays keyboard um, in, in the Mr. Bill live show now, his dad wrote Like a Prayer by Madonna and... And he wrote like a bunch of really big stuff. He he did like um he wrote like a bunch of Leonard Cohen albums and stuff like that. Uh, and he's not amazing at sound design. Uh, he he messes around with modular synthesis, but he's not like um crazy sound designer or whatever. But that's not his job. Like he he gets paid to write the tunes. Like he's a really good piano player. And then he'll hire someone. Um, he he's never hired me, but he would hire someone like me to do all of that sound design and and stuff like that. You know? And to do all of the crazy mixing and whatnot, you, you hire an engineer at that point if you're trying to write pop music. Yeah, exactly. And if you're making, I don't know, if you're making trance music, then it's like you can use presets and you can still make a unique tune that's going to sound awesome. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like people try learn everything when it's it's not always wise to do that. Yeah, I mean, I've, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm definitely not as much of a composer as I am um, mixing and sound design. Uh, but I try to be, <laughs> and I think it's just a matter of, you know, time for me to build up my compositional skills, but I don't know like anything about music theory or, or anything like that. What are some underrated production techniques? Underrated production techniques. Um, so <laughs> I think the most like overused one at this point for me, at least is resampling. Um, so I wouldn't say that's under underrated. 
I'd say that's like one of the most important ones. Uh, why? So why? Um, I just think to get the depth out of the sounds these days, you kind of need to resample a lot. Like it just coming straight out of a synthesizer these days doesn't really cut it. Um, at least for like bass music and neuro and stuff. Uh, wait, wait, what was the question? Underrated production techniques. Yeah, yeah. If you can think of it. I don't know, man. I, it's so uh, it's hard for me to think of because I use so many every day, you know. So maybe I don't know. Like for somebody, if they're not using EQ very much, I'd be like, man, you're underrating EQ. Like EQ is super fucking important. Or like you know, maybe they're not resampling anything ever, and and I have to tell them that you know resampling is super important, um, or something like that. I don't know. It's really hard. I, I think as as a general rule, I don't really watch another enough people produce to know where everybody collectively is lacking. And I think it's like a producer by producer case, probably. No, good answer. Um, perhaps this one then. What are some of the most underrated Ableton stock plugins and why? Because I feel like, you, you know, you're master at Ableton. And I also feel that a lot of people um, think I need more 30, third party plugins. And like, there's a bunch of stuff you can do with Ableton stuff that is is awesome. Right. Um, so there's this funny fucking thing, man. Um, you know how you can, you can open up like your audio effects or your instruments or your plugins or whatever. Uh, actually, if you, have you got Ableton open right now? I will open it. Yep. Okay. So click on audio effects. Um, open up that, uh, that pane. So it's like half your screen wide and then up the top, right, uh, up the top of audio effects, see how it says name. Yep. And then to the right of it, it says rank or it should say date modified. If you right click that gray bar where it says name and hit rank, uh, you can sort your plugins by their rank. And then that's literally what is the most used and most underused on your system. So, so for me, the most used one is multiband dynamics, auto filter, utility, glue compressor, saturator. Um, and the least used ones is simple delay, redux, vinyl distortion, phaser, limiter etc that's mine's a lot different <laughs> surely um i mean so i don't use the ableton eq for anything okay um i use pro q2 for for all my eqing because it's just so like i like the you know, i like the way it feels and sounds uh and then i generally i use the multiband dynamics a lot in ableton and i use the glue compressor a lot because they're very nice sort of like well the multiband dynamics i use more or less like an eq actually um the glue compressor i use more of like a as like a distortion saturator i use more as a transient shaper and a limiter um and then pretty much everything else like if i want another saturator i'll use like isotope trash or satin or something or um or if i want a better compressor i'll use like alloy 2 or something so yeah generally i'm I'm using a lot of third-party stuff these days but uh but yeah that, that rank system anyway will tell you basically or Again, I think it's a producer by producer case. We'd have to go into everyone's computer and check this rank thing. Yeah, <laughs> no, this is interesting though. Throw it all into a spreadsheet and then average it or something. Yeah. Oh man, it's such a good idea. Because <laughs> Redux is quite high for me, and like, yeah, vinyl I never distortion use is at the bottom. So here's the thing: if you like Redux, you should use um, fuck, it's uh, it's in Guitar Rig. Do you have Guitar Rig? I I have Complete, so I think it's in there. Okay. Yeah. So in Guitar Rig, if you go to like the um, the Tractor S12 plugins, there's this one called Bit Reducer or something like that. Um, 
and that that one is like way just a way nicer redux in my opinion yeah okay cool cool i start using that i mean it's fascinating it sounds a lot smoother so if if we're gonna i don't i generally don't like bit reduction as an effect um i'd prefer to saturate or compress to get the same effect so to kind of crush the signal so it sounds glitchy um whereas redux kind of sounds like a i don't know like this cheap sort of fuzzy thing it is a bit um, cheap yeah yeah so if i ever do want that effect though that's the one that i use for that gotcha okay man i just want to look at like everyone's laptops now yeah seriously (laughs) i've definitely checked out frequence and i've checked out like a few other friends but yeah it's it's always interesting seeing like what people rinse in the stock plugins i think yeah i think for frequent like the main one was like uh, i don't know a compressor or something like that what I feel like we've kind of gone over this, but maybe you could elaborate. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see new producers specifically uh, making? Um, hmm, good question. Um, I mean, I, I don't know, man. It's again, I think it's such a different thing for everyone. Like, um, for instance, when I first started producing, I would constantly put um this thing. Uh, in ozone 5 on my master uh, and i would always like it was like a spread or like an imager oh yeah, yeah. and i would always put it on my master because i'd be like oh it sounds so wide <laughs> um and i was producing at the time through a fucking guitar amp <laughs> so i was like oh man this is like the this sounds awesome and then now listening back on those tracks and records i'm just like fuck man i can't believe i did that to every single track on this record it's so dumb so um so that sort of shit is like yeah uh, fuck that like yeah (laughs) if if someone was doing that i'd be like that's the biggest mistake ever but um i don't know man like a lot of people um like for instance got my friend gardner he runs this youtube channel called garden sound uh he was at my house recently and showing me a bunch of his tracks and one thing i noticed is that he didn't put enough high frequencies in anything like Mm -hmm. it all sounded dull uh but then you can go obviously too far with high frequencies too and make it sound a bit up and brittle so it's obviously all a balancing but i generally the biggest mistakes that i find anyone doing is it's generally mix related because you know who am i to say that the composition's bad or that the sound design is bad like mm. they're, they're sort of subjective things where it's like whereas mixing is not so subjective it's uh, i mean it is to an extent but but there is like an objective balance that everyone sort of likes and all the tracks that you hear like get popular and most of the tracks that you hear on bport and you know spotify and all that crap they generally have this balance where they have a pretty um like flat spectrum based on today's technology and speakers you know so so i'd say the the biggest mistake for a beginner is just like not at all uh knowing or not well i guess not knowing can't be a mistake but um like the biggest mistake would be not realizing or i guess that's not a mistake either not not knowing something can't be a mistake like you can't make <laughs> no, a mistake if you don't. so i don't know man i know, yeah, I, know I guess but, yeah yeah it, like the balance i think is like a very baseline important thing that you should be kind of aware of and you should should know how to use like a spectrum analyzer from the get-go and you should kind of know how an eq works within the first you know month or two of getting into it and stuff like that yeah i think um one mistake that I made, which relates to the balance, is I always high passed things like too high, and so there'd always be a massive dip in the low mids. Yeah, you'd never have sub. Yeah, yeah. Or, or yeah, you cut too much away. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah i used to do that all the time too man yeah yeah same thing low mids i would always like yeah high pass stuff a little too much and then have that big dip around like 200 to 300 mm. hertz mm. yeah but you need that shit it's like your big meaty sort of top harmonics of your kick and stuff yeah. and yeah exactly yeah. um do you get creative block or writer's block no i don't believe it's a thing actually interesting neither do i neither do i tell me about that uh so i've never i've i've had situations where i didn't want to write and i just wanted to play video games and i called that writer's block at the time but looking back on it um and i was depressed at the time as well but um looking back on it it was just laziness and if i really wanted to make music and i was driven to do that uh, then I would have just made music and I, and I did I made an album it just took me like fucking nine months or a year or something which I think by most producers standards is okay quick. but <laughs> well I wrote two albums that year actually because the second one only oh, took yeah. me like two three months or something um, so so I think for for me um, I'm basically either working happily or I'm forcing myself to work unhappily or I'm forcing myself to work kind of happily, but I, I never create it. Like I never have writer's block. Like I'm always just either happy or unhappy to work, you know? But if you, if you accept that this is what you do full time and you're like, well, the other option, like there's two options for me. The, the one option is to work every day, work hard every day, hone my craft and get better at it and maybe be unhappy some days. Cause I'm like a little feeling hungover or something or whatever. Or the other option is maybe I have to go to a shitty job whilst being hungover and feeling shitty anyway, you know? It's like you're going to feel shitty on that day regardless, so... Um, or maybe you will or maybe you won't, but... Yeah, if, if you're feeling shit, maybe writing music isn't the worst thing anyway. That's such a good point when you put it in that context. And, and like, I think the best advice I ever heard from someone was to treat your craft as a professional. Because um, there's a... a like a significant difference between how professionals work and how non-professionals work. And just because you're not doing it full time, like a lot of people listening to this do have day jobs and like they'll be working on it on the side. Um, but if you treat your work as professional, it's like creative block just disappears. Well, it has to because, um, and I use this analogy, if you write for the New York Times and you're going into work you're not going to say to your boss, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm not feeling it today. Um, yeah, can I go I, home? I just- <laughs> <laughs> like, they they force themselves to write every day. It's creative work. Right. So why should it be yeah. any different with music? Right, exactly. And what, one thing that I've found with my work personally is um, that I don't necessarily have to write every day. Like, technically, if I, just, if I come into the studio and just do shit, like, for instance, I'm doing something right now, I'm doing this podcast, this is kind of a part of, like work in a way because it's like you know, promotion and whatnot and and this this comes under the whole umbrella of shit that i do um another thing that i have to do later today so i'm working on like a, a vr game at the moment um so the movie thing finished and now i'm scoring a virtual reality game it's fucking crazy man there's this thing called waves next and i'm um, and you get like i'm mixing in 3d sound i have wow. this bluetooth tracker phones that like tracks my head movement and stuff it's crazy um so any, anyway um I, I can talk about more of that later but yeah i'm, I'm keen to hear that <laughs> um so anyway uh today i didn't really feel like writing and i today was one of those days where i felt a little shitty so instead i've just been mixing and um 
and what else was I doing? I was doing some sound design before, and then I was like organizing some folders on my computer. It's like menial shit that mm-hmm. I can do if I feel like shit. It's just annoying work. Um, but I don't necessarily have to be like feeling super driven to write music every day, and I can still be effectively adding. Dude, this cat is going insane. <laughs> and I can still be effectively like adding to the whole picture of getting stuff done in the long run, you know? So, so I don't necessarily feel like writing music today, but I'm still going to be working on something. I'm going to be mixing and I'm going to be, you know, organizing other stuff like that, that I wouldn't want to do. Cause when you, when you're in creative mode, you don't want to sit there mixing and you don't want to sit there like organizing, like when you're halfway, like right in the zone of like getting structure out of your tune and, and really making progress. The last thing you want to do is go and organize your sample folder. Right. So like, <laughs> so you just pick a day where you're not really feeling like writing tunes to do that sort of shit. And Ill Gates talks about that, I think, quite a bit. Um, the whole separation and like preparation sessions and writing sessions. So you don't want to mix them together too much. Uh, see, I don't agree with that so much. And, I, and he, doesn't, he doesn't either, man. Because like I've written, two, I've written two tunes with him and both times I, caught, I, I called him on his bullshit <laughs> for like doing yeah. so many things that he said not to do like um like he said never smoke when you're writing he fucking smoked weed constantly when we were writing like because we're well we're, we're uh, like i live in colorado so it's legal um and yeah definitely weed is a part of the process here <laughs> um and and like he said what was another thing he said oh the, the chopping block rule like if, if you don't have the tune done in like 10 hours just fucking chop it up for parts or something and dude we sp- i have video evidence that we spent <laughs> like 60 to 70 hours on this tune so like oh man yeah so 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 he doesn't even agree with a lot of the stuff he said so so i don't necessarily agree with um uh and not, not like having a stab at dylan he's like another really good friend of mine i love him but um yeah i definitely think that that you should do shit however you see fit and and that's what he does like and that's how that's just how it's done like you you mix and write at the same time it's it's impossible to just throw a kick and a bass in your session leave it totally unmixed and sounding shit and then throw a big loud yeah. shitty voice snare in there and be like this is fine i can be creative under these circumstances yeah like yeah. you need to sound good to be inspired so you need to do a little bit of mixing oh yeah 100 percent. if you pull a, an instrument and it's too loud you're gonna turn it down instinctively right and and also like if you don't it's just going to bother you like the whole day and it's going to affect you creatively probably i think uh what does help though is is sometimes i find when i do the the menial work or maybe just sound design and i'm not that into sound design but um if i do that kind of stuff often it'll inspire an idea which um does enhance the writing sessions if that makes sense right yep yep i get you so um so if you're doing a menial thing like maybe organizing samples or presets and then you stumble across one that you never knew you had and it sounds really nice inspires an idea or something yeah i definitely have that experience a lot as well um like if i so some some days i um this is another thing that i do when i'm feeling kind of shitty and don't want to write music is i go okay well i'm just going to spend today watching tutorial videos on how to use make noise tempi module or something or how to use my ocos um, or how to use zebra 2 or, or something and in the process of learning some new things um it inspires me to want to write anyway because i just figure something and cool out or, or whatever yeah yeah absolutely um i want to talk more about the vr thing that sounds fascinating <clears throat> yeah cool so i'm so i'm just writing music for it i'm not like doing any sound design or anything 
um, so that yeah, basically the, the licensing tracks off me. But the way that we have to deliver the tracks is kind of interesting. We have to um, so we set up this thing called NX by Waves, which is totally available to anyone who wants to get it. And then you put this NX thing in three send channels. Um, so you put three stereo instances of NX in three stereo return channels. One of them is like front, and then one of them becomes the center, and one of them becomes the rear. So if you're looking at like a, a graph, the front would be you know 60 degrees to your to your front ears, so equal lateral triangle that we're used to. The rear would be the opposite of that, so the speakers behind you. Um, still 60 degrees equilateral to your head and then the center would be uh, speakers to the left and the right of you so um, yeah and, and what it does is it, it sort of digitally makes this binaural image of these speakers uh, around you and you plug a bluetooth tracker into your computer and then attach the other end of it to your headphones and this plug-in tracks your head movement and then uh, you measure the size of your head with a tape measure and you put that measurement into the plugin so it knows like exactly how big your head is and like how big your room is and whatnot and it, and it fucking sounds unreal man oh, so man. like i'll send like my kick and my snare to the front speakers and then my bass to like the side speakers and then all my effects and shit to the rear and then i can sit here and like turn my head left to right with my um with my uh with my headphones on and it sounds like i'm in like just surrounded by a surround sound system how basically. Do, how do i do this you know? how do i like I want, to, I want to do this so, next. So, okay, so there's two ways that you can track your head movement. Um, so if you just go to Google and type in Waves NX. Waves NX. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that'll just come up with links. Oh, cool. uh, so one of the first things that you should see on Google is the, the plugin, which is 40 bucks. But then there's a head tracker. The head tracker is like 70. Um, they just sent me the head tracker because I have to work on this game. But I'm pretty sure if you have a webcam, you can use your webcam to track your head movement as well. Okay. I don't think it's as good as the Bluetooth tracker, but it's like $70 cheap. $70 is pretty good. Want. Like for... Dude, I, honestly, man, like it's fucking insane how cool this thing sounds even if you like obviously releasing music this way is a little complicated because um you know not everyone has a system that will do this stuff so instead i think they're creating like a web player so anyone can go to the web and experience your music that way maybe or I, I don't know i asked them about it the other day and they said something about a web player so i, I need to look more into that but um, but even just for your own purposes yeah, I of just fun. <laughs> dude, it's fucking worth it, man. It's so fun. Oh, it's so yeah. cool. Yeah, it's super cool. And and it's pretty easy to set up. Like they explained it to me directly, so I had like direct support from Waves, but um but yeah, the uh it's actually just like yeah, it's pretty easy. You just put it in some send channels and then just start sending shit to it. Um there's a few things though. I, first thing I did when I loaded up the plugin was I sent my kick and snare and bass and just everything i sent everything to all sets of speakers so the front the rear and the sides and it sounded like terrible like it sounded phasey and all crazy so, um <clears throat> so i was like what the hell guys this plugin fucking sucks and then <laughs> then we jumped on a skype call and they like explained how it works and all this crap and um yeah it turns out that you can just send it to like if you just send it to like one at a time it's, it's really nice okay yeah oh man but yeah i definitely suggest using it for basically i think yeah a bit over 100 bucks you can get like a surround set up in your headphones and it's really really believable it's crazy that is so so freaking cool actually uh, yeah i'm seeing this thing here where you can actually buy the plug-in and the head tracker for 70 bucks so oh yes that's, that's yeah from sick. a company 
full compass. So yeah, uh, yeah, to- totally cool, man. It's really awesome. What is something you personally want to improve on when it comes to to music production, or what have you been spending a lot of time on recently? Um, I think composition is something I want to I want to get better at. Like, uh, I would like to, um, yeah, to to definitely. I feel like my music, um, and maybe everyone feels like this, like my compositions are a bit stale. I, I feel like my mix downs are like, they're okay. I could always get better at mixing and I could always get better at sound design. But for the, for the most part, like, um, I don't want to say like, oh yeah, I'm in like the top 10% of mix down people or some <laughs> bullshit. Cause I, like, I, I definitely am not, but like, I, I think that my mixes sound okay. And I think that my sound design is okay. So, um, yeah composition i guess would be my my main one that i would want to get better at so what i've been doing lately is like um playing a lot of drums and keyboard and guitar and all sorts of like like moving away from the computer more and i just recently got into modular synthesis so i've been um you know using this step sequencer to sequence a lot of my melodies and stuff and it's interesting because i feel like when you step away and start doing stuff away from the screen and you're using your ears more than your eyes, then you just start to come up with, you know, more natural sounding ideas and um, compositions uh, start to kind of like flow in your head a lot more. Whereas, whereas if you start in Ableton and you're like, okay, I've dropped the kick in, where now? Okay, I've dropped the snare in, where now? You're not necessarily coming up with any ideas. You're more or less like in technical processes and it, it's very easy to get stale that way and it's very easy to make stale sounding music that way. I think there's something to be said also about the change in environment because if you're if you always work in Ableton and you always do things a certain way and you want to be unique or like more creative all of a sudden it's hard to work against the ingrained habit and processes um, like I find when I like I play guitar for a long time I don't play it much like I don't practice um, but when I pick up a guitar and just kind of jam for half an hour like I'll come up with an idea that would never have entered my head if I was just like looking at the piano roll. Right. And and um one of the things that I like about modular synthesis now that I never really understood is that that exact same uh idea of like for instance I, I started messing around with this modular synthesizer that I bought. Um actually I can show you. Here, check it out. My webcam is on it right now. <laughs> oh sick. Yeah, so I just got this set up. It's like three grand or something worth of modules. It's fucking awesome. So, um, yeah, I got this set up and, and I was kind of always like, well, they don't really sound better than plugins and they're harder to use and they're annoying and they're expensive and like all of these downsides to it. But then as soon as I started messing around with other people's modular stuff, um, the sounds that I would make were completely different to the sounds that I would make with software, even if I could have made the same sounds with software. Right. And yeah, just because the process was different, it was, you know, you instantly just start making noisier basses by accident, you know? <laughs> You're just like, oh shit, I accidentally just figured out how to make a thing. Because like, I, I would never have thought, you know, to send a gate input into like a, into a, pitch input or a linear fm input or something on a plugin or or some most plugins don't even do that sort of shit or you know clouds like this hardware granulizer thing or um i have these like random voltage generators and just yeah i think they definitely inspire a lot of crazy ideas yeah definitely stepping away from ableton is a good way to improve composition but but like i said earlier i don't know anything about music theory so one thing i would like to improve on is learning more about music theory Um, i definitely think I'm at this point where I'm like 
I, I have like mixed feelings about it because I'm like, well, can't teach an old dog new tricks. So. Right, right. <laughs> why bother? Why bother learning music theory now? You know, I seem to be doing okay without it or whatever. But I think that's just like some complacent bullshit. And I probably really, I, I probably would have fun learning it. So, yeah, I don't know. Do you know music theory? I know a bit, and um, I too would like to learn some more. I think it's I think it's really helpful. Um, everyone I've talked to who knows music theory well says it's helped immensely because there are people out there who think it's not worth learning. Um, and, like, it's true. There, there are producers who have been producing for 20 years and can compo- compose, like, amazing music, but I think that's in spite of not learning theory like not because they don't right. know theory um uh-huh, yeah and they're generally the exceptions not the rule as well they're not like yeah no i definitely think so i mean i make some music that has some um for instance the the guy who plays keys in the show he was here the other day and i was teaching him uh, or not teaching him but showing him the midi rather for a couple of my tracks and he was playing him and he was like dude these voicings are like so sick and like uh you know these movement like these kind of chord movements and stuff are really interesting um and, and he knows that i don't know music theory so he was like kind of impressed that i came up with those chord progressions and that just proves that you can make these like insanely jazzy like what he would like what somebody who's really well versed in music theory would consider like heavily theorized stuff yeah without without actually knowing it um but at the same time it would probably take me like half the time to come up with those kind of progressions rather than sitting there for you know four hours moving midi notes up and down trying to figure out which one sounds jazzy i think that's the thing and i think it speeds it up and i think also like for instance if i'm working on a song and i want to um I don't know like if I want to take it from like a light mood to a dark mood all of a sudden but make it sound natural it's like I don't know how to do that I have to spend so much time figuring out how to change a key or like not the key or the mode or whatever and so on and so on and I feel like knowing more theory would help with that if it's like I want this to sound kind of jazzy but not quite um you can do that if you have a good ear but like you said it's just going to take longer yeah, absolutely. Well, the um, one thing I learned about music theory recently was from this interview from a guy called Jacob Collier, who's um, he does YouTube videos and stuff as well, uh, where he, he mostly does like, uh, yeah, he's really cool. He does like acapella stuff and like really interesting music stuff, um, like crazy chord progressions and whatnot. And one thing that he said in this interview was that the way he looks at harmony is just like you have basically a starting place and an ending place for the harmony, and then you can kind of do whatever the fuck you want in between. So you might start on like this nice, you know, major chord uh, and then you might end on this ni- nice resolving minor chord or something, right? And then anything in between, you can just bridge however you like. Um, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting way to look at it. So the next day, or actually I think it was the same day I went to my studio and um, and was, yeah, I was like writing uh, based on that idea, like just creating start and end points uh, that lasted like 64 bars or 32 bars with harmony and then trying to just create these like epic bridges of chord progressions and it actually kind of worked but yeah it would be nice to know what i was actually doing you, you mentioned you work like 8 to 12 hours and you have been for a long time but do you have strictly defined like work times do you strive to put in a certain amount of time every day or every week what does that look like um it's pretty sparse so generally i'll wake up my morning is like open my blinds and have a shower and get some coffee and then just go straight into the studio 
and um, pretty much answer all the emails that I have for the morning. And um, oh, you do email first. Oh, yeah, I do email first. Yeah, because I, I don't want to though. I I do it, I prefer to do it because um my uh, anxiety gets the better of me otherwise of me feeling like there's shit something that urgent. hasn't been yeah. yeah exactly and then, and also um whilst I'm I do it while I'm having my coffee so it kind of like my brain is turning on at the same time <laughs> and then by the time I'm finished with emails I usually just start writing straight away and then um uh, I always wake up at different times. Like sometimes uh, this morning, I woke up at eight thirty. Or actually, I got woken up by a fucking kitten. <laughs> then I'm, uh, other times, I'll wake up at like you know two in the afternoon or whatever. So I, I have a pretty loose sleeping schedule. But if I wake up at two, uh, I'll definitely work until like you know three, four in the morning. And if I wake up at eight thirty, I'll definitely be working until at least like you know ten or eleven or midnight. So, right. um, so it doesn't really matter when I wake up. I'll, I'll always put in the hours usually. Um, unless I'm busy, like for instance, my schedule right now, um, if I look at my calendar, my schedule right now sucks for writing music actually. Uh, too broken up. On. Um, uh, it's just kind of, I got a lot to do. So hold on, let's see. Okay. So yeah, so basically now until Thursday, I'm just working on this game and then on Friday I'm flying to Philadelphia to play a show. And then the day after, so I guess Saturday, I'm flying back to Denver. And then the day after that, Sunday, um, I'm doing a little bit more work. And then Monday, I fly out to Australia for a two-week tour. Mm. And then I'm back in like the middle of June. But then I'm pretty much off for the rest of the year. And I think I'll try and like straighten out my sleeping a bit and mm. you know, try and make it a little bit more um, uh, more of a routine. But but I, I also don't like routine. I find that it, I get stale a little bit. Like if I'm just getting up every day, the exact same time working the exact same hours um yeah i don't know I, I get a little bit stale i think it's important to have those like you know midnight to 4 a.m sessions sometimes and then it's so important to have those like get up at 8 a.m and do really systematic shit until like 1 or 2 p.m type sessions you know yeah i found like for me like i need that relatively consistent wake-up time but there seems to be like long it's like a long phases where um, I work better until 11 p.m. and wake up like at nine for like a period of a month and then it goes back to what it was before. It's real strange. Yeah, totally. I think that's that's the same thing. It's like you get, you, it's like your brain sort of gets stale and, and you enjoy that like that fresh feeling of changing a little bit and then, and then yeah, helping a bit. Obviously, like you, some people's lives don't, um, don't allow that. Like if they have a child or something, then they have to be a little bit more job, stringent. Yeah yeah or a job exactly um but yeah i definitely think if your life allows it then uh you should experiment with sleeping for sure because i think that's like a big part of it like sometimes um for a long time actually uh i would go through these big cycles where um where i would like wake up at midday and then i would go to bed at like um i don't know three four a.m and the next day i would wake up at like 2 p.m and then go to sleep at like uh you know five six a.m the next day i'll wake up at 4 p.m oh, and so on and so forth and I, and I would do this huge cycle would until it cycle I was getting, over uh, until like yeah it would wow. yeah and, and it would get back until i would be waking up at 9 a.m again <laughs> and um and then i'll just go through that cycle where i'll just stay up a little longer every day and go to and sleep in a little later every day um because i was doing like you know 16 hours awake and then eight hours of sleep and if you do the math you just end up doing a big cycle sort of thing yeah yeah um 
Uh, actually, maybe I was sleeping long. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I was doing these big cycles and um, and I found that to be really beneficial actually because like I would get a good balance of like all the types of sessions that I needed, you know. Mm. I feel like that would disorient me like, oh. Oh, no, it's totally, it fucks you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, um, but it is interesting like to go through the creative process that way. Uh, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Uh, um, hmm. shit I don't know man maybe like choose a different career no I don't know <laughs> um, no probably uh, probably learn music theory honestly I, I'd probably be like hey like yeah sure go into Ableton and like go nuts but don't like put the guitar down completely because I used to be like epic at guitar and that would be a nice skill to have still but um, I didn't upkeep that skill so now I have to rebuild again like if I wanted to get as good as I was I would need to start inputting you know four hours a day and probably doing that for a year before I was sort of back to where I was at before so um, yeah I'd probably tell my 18 year old self to maybe not only not lose that skill with like an hour of practice a day but perhaps even build up a keyboard playing skill again because I was good at that when I was younger as well and also learn music theory and not just disregard that shit completely and also i probably would have told myself to never waste those few years writing psytrance when i was 18 i was pretty much writing psytrance so oh i'm sorry <laughs> yeah oh, so well. it's definitely i wouldn't call it a waste of time i learned like a lot yeah, of yeah of course and obviously like psytrance is kind of good but everybody loves learning. to rip on psytrance so yeah well it sucks but um yeah it's uh i feel like um i was talking to a friend about this the other day and he was like man psytrance like if you come to that shit late in the game it's like this weird little box that you just open and you look at it and you just be like what the fuck is this and it's like close it again (laughs) oh man um so true yeah i was definitely I was definitely writing Psytrance when I first started a, a bit more than I should have been. I was also writing Glitch because um, I was influenced a lot by Apex and Square Pusher and stuff. But but definitely, I um, yeah, I would probably tell myself to steer clear of less musical stuff like that and try to keep up with the music theory and the playing and stuff like that. Because I think that's, yeah, for me personally, it's a skill that I wish I still had and, and I'm trying to rebuild now, you know. I'm in the same boat. I mean... Yeah, like started playing guitar and drums when I was 10 and and then got into production around 14 and kind of did both for a while, but production, you know, took the lead, which was awesome, but gave up and like now when I pick up a guitar, I can play maybe like five songs um, or like I know their scales, like all that kind of stuff. Same with drums, just not the same as I used to be. And you just right. think you're sitting there thinking like, it's going to take so long to get back to where I was. <laughs> totally man and, and, and it's a shame because like you'll see these really amazing players sometimes and you're just like fuck that's so amazing like to see somebody expressing themselves so coherently yes, yeah. in real time um and and yeah i miss being able to do that for starters but secondly i think it's a more honest expression because you know with production it's, it's not really an honest expression it is kind of because it's like a larger snapshot of your emotional state over time mm. but but with guitar or something like that it's all in real time so it's kind of like the most transparent emotional expression through music and you see somebody doing that it kind of like it touches you in a way where you're just like damn that's like super cool and um and i miss having that ability to one express myself that way 
but secondly, I think it's an amazing thing to watch. So it would be a nice thing to be able to incorporate into the live show rather than just doing sampling and hitting drum pads and whatnot. But I, I, I've been playing drums for like an hour or two a day recently. And I'm, uh, I include that um, within my eight-hour studio sessions also. And uh, yeah, I've definitely been enjoying getting better at drums again because I used to play drums a lot as well. And, I'm, and I bought a seven-string recently, so I'm slowly getting back into that as well. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really cool. To me, the hardest thing is like knowing that, you know, you're playing the instrument. It's like, man, I used to be way better than this. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's a shame. Like I think when you're learning and you see these other people play really well, it's like, oh, well, I'm just learning. Like, obviously, yeah, I'm yeah. not going to be as good as that. But when you look back over the years and you're like, oh, damn, I guess <laughs> it's not the same anymore. And when you see someone like really good, like Charlie Hunter or something, you're just like, fuck, man, like that is totally better time spent than learning how to produce electron well actually maybe that's fallacious fallacious <laughs> mm. yeah i don't know sometimes i feel that way yeah but but i probably would feel the other way if i spent all my time playing guitar and then being like man these producers man yeah. they, i'm envious it's the whole guys. grass is greener thing yeah totally <laughs> well bill uh thanks for coming on the show really appreciate your time uh where can people learn more about you where can people check out the membership site um give us all the details uh, yeah, so if you go to mrbillstunes.com, that's my website. And pretty much Mr. Bill's Tunes is my handle across everything like Instagram, SoundCloud, Twitter, whatnot. I think Facebook might be Mr. Bill Artists, but I'm trying to get it changed. But somebody else has the Mr. Bill's Tunes handle. I actually think I have the Mr. Bill's Tunes handle from an old account that I deleted. <laughs> I can't like make my artist page that. Um, I haven't looked into it in a while, but yeah, YouTube is Mr. Bill's Tunes as well. Just basically Mr. Bill's Tunes, everything. Yeah.